Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. I want you guys to take out your Bibles. I'm going to have a shorter sermon tonight, and you all said amen. Uh, Really excited about this sermon. I needed this sermon this week. This is one of those anchoring sermons that remind us of the things that we need to be reminded of, the important things. John writes uh, his gospel, his biography of the life of Jesus, and he tells us at the very end why he wrote the whole thing in the first place. When he says, I wrote this so that you may have life. That through your belief in Jesus, that it would produce life. And so this whole next few months, we're going to be going through this gospel, this book of the Bible. And our anticipation is it would produce life inside of us, inside of our souls. And so we, we encountered Jesus right out of the gate doing some pretty radical things. Last week we talked about like wedding Jesus, party Jesus. He's a good time. Uh, <laughs> Next, next turn of events, Jesus is overthrowing tables and running people out with a whip he made by hand. So we have, like, revolutionary Jesus. I mean, this is like, this guy is doing everything in a very short amount of time. And so as we dive into this really epic story, but can honestly lead us, can be a little confusing if we don't understand what's going on here. I want us just to read the story and ask ourselves this question. Why... What would cause Jesus to be so emotionally stirred, so zealous, that he would make a whip with his bare hands and drive out an entire courtyard filled with people? What's going inside of Jesus that would, would allow that to take place? Again, as, as a sinless man, this is a righteous anger that's come over him. So let's kind of ask ourselves that question as we read this passage in John chapter 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple course, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will erase it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And by the way, they weren't done for another 30 Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Um, And then if you can turn over just to the left a couple books to Mark chapter 11. I want to read Mark's account because there's some details Mark uh, draws in the stories that helps illuminate and color uh, what's going on here. 
Mark 11, verse 15 says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you've made it into a den of robbers. It's a fascinating story. This is maybe the, the most angry we ever see Jesus getting. Why? And I think in order to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves another question about um, the temple. What is the temple? How did it come to be? And how does that uh, form our understanding of why Jesus would find himself this zealous, this passionate? You see, the tabernacle... Uh, began not as a building but as a tent. After God rescued the Israelites from the hand of Egypt, Moses, their deliverer, was given special instructions by God, uh, not only to give them the law and the Ten Commandments, but in that to build a tent or a tabernacle for God's presence to dwell. So as a nomadic tribal people, they moved from place to place throughout the desert, and the first thing they would do is they'd set up this tabernacle or this tent the same way every single time, and then they would build their personal family tents around it, facing it with their doors facing the temple. This was central to their, their um, geographical living situation, but it was also central to their faith. The temple was, was everything. And within the temple, there was three primary goals that the temple accomplished. And if, you, if you're taking notes, these three goals that are pivotal for us to understand why, what Jesus is doing here. The, the three goals of the temple, number one was presence. This is where God's presence would fall, um, whether it's a pillar of smoke, fire, or once eventually the temple is built, God's presence comes and fills that place in the Holy of Holies. So presence is key. This is where God's presence dwells. Second thing is this is where people gather. So this is where, this is again the center of the community, the community hub. This is where you'd see people, even live in distances for the festivals, you'd come together. And this was, again, the central place where judgment was given, where there's the judicial system, the sacrificial system. This is about people. And thirdly, this is where prayers were offered. And so, presence, people, and prayer were at the foundation of why God gave the temple, or at that time, the tabernacle, to the people of Israel. Well, fast forward a few hundred years, the nation of Israel is no longer nomadic. They've settled into the land of Israel, and Jerusalem is their capital. And David, who's king at the time, asks God, would you let me build you a temple? And God responds, you can't build a temple, you shed too much blood. Uh, but your son can build it. So David spends the majority of his life gathering materials, the best materials. And Solomon, when he comes of age, begins to start building what is arguably one of the most magnificent structures the ancient world had ever seen. It attracted world leaders from all over the globe to travel just to see what Solomon had built. And the reason why this is so significant is because temples represented that kind of more, the more ornate the temple was, the bigger the temple was, the more gorgeous the temple was, reflected what you thought of your God and also the power of your God. And so you can imagine that at, at the time when the nation of Israel was at its largest and the temple was at its most grand uh, thing, this was, this was very connected. 
Well, as the people of God begin to walk away from the laws of God, they walk away from the purpose of the temple, from His presence, from prayer, from His heart towards people. Other nations begin to lay siege to Israel, and the first thing they do, like any other, like any military force would do, is they destroy the temple. Because if you destroy the temple, you destroy the gods. Was the ancient understanding, and so the nation of Israel is dispersed throughout these different kind of world powers. All along, longing for what? The temple. Because the temple was what gave them a sense of national identity. It was what gave them a sense of God's heart towards them. And there's an attempt at this through Ezra and Nehemiah. They start to build it. But even some of the prophets say this was kind of a failed attempt. It wasn't very long until that temple was torn down as well. And so the temple really never regains its kind of that robust standing of its, its, its glory days, if you will. Until around the time of Jesus. At that time, they're underneath the Roman Empire. And the Roman Emperor at that time would designate different kings or governors over lands. This is one of the ways it had such an expansive uh, kind of uh, hand in all of these different countries. And so the Emperor at that time said, Herod, you will be the king of the Jews. And he picked Herod as king of the Jews because of his father's role, but also because Herod was a half Jew. Um, and so the Roman Empire was like, great, you're half Jew, you're the king of the Jews. Well, what he didn't understand is the Jewish people, you, there's no such thing as a half Jew, you're a Jew or you're not. And so the Jewish people hated Herod the Great. And so Herod the Great didn't like that because his last name is Great, right? So he wanted to, he wanted to kind of prove them wrong. And so in the middle of building these four unbelievable palaces that you can still go visit today, mind you, Josephus, the historian, says the temple was his crown jewel. The most amazing thing that Herod the Great ever built, again, this is about 30, 40 years before Jesus really came on the scene, was this temple. And so a great way to win the Jewish people back is to build them, to reconstruct maybe one of the greatest structures that they had ever seen. So they go from kind of these um, kind of these sandstone, lava rock kind of houses and these nomadic fishing villages. And the Passover comes and they walk into Jerusalem. And the center of Jerusalem is one of the most grand structures you could ever imagine in the ancient world. It was just there in September. And you can still see Herodian stones everywhere. At the base of the temple, get this, there are stones that Herod the Great had quarried out, shaped, and placed there on top of each other, some of them the size of a school bus. Um, archaeologists, archaeologists still don't know how he got them there or stacked on top of each other. They have no idea because the Roman holy systems weren't strong enough to support the stones that he got there. I mean, so you, you can imagine that this was... This began to do something in the Jewish people. Our temple's back. And not only is it back, it's grand. This reflects who we are, who our God is. And as a nation, this is how it should be. And it began to kind of stir up this nationalistic pride once again. And this hope that maybe God's heart was returning towards Israel and as this is happening, as the temple is quite literally being built, so is the pride within the Jewish people to state, well, this, we're, this is who we are. We are God's people. And everyone else, their term for them was dogs. This is important because when we get to the temple, 
Uh, when we get to this story, it's around the time of the Passover feast. Now, historians believe that when the Passover would happen, 300 to 400,000 people would show up at the temple. I mean, just imagine that. Right? I mean, the temple is huge, but not three or 400,000 people big. And so, it just, from all over the surrounding Judean area, just comes this huge influx of Jews. And you can imagine what it feels like as people start to just see seas of people that look like them and talk like them. And as they get to the temple to offer their sacrifices, the temple's built in a unique way. You see, it's built in kind of these sections. First, at the innermost part is the Holy of Holies, where God's presence would dwell. Then there's the holy place. And then there's a courtyard of the Jews where men were allowed. And then there's a courtyard for women. And on the outskirts, because of the Levitical law, there was what was called the courtyard of the Gentiles. Now stick with me here. This is really important. The courtyard of the Gentiles was given in the blueprints that God gave to his people because his desire was that anyone could come and experience the presence of God, whether they were Jewish or not. Well, the Jews, being good Jews, followed the Torah to every letter of the law. But they kind of had a problem with there being a Gentile courtyard. So rather than doing away with the Gentile courtyard, they filled it with a marketplace. So they started selling animals and exchanging rates. So when you read the story, it almost seems like Jesus is mad that there's a market going on here. But if you look at the Levitical law, that's actually totally, that's totally fine. You're supposed to go exchange your goods or your money, buy what you couldn't bring from like 400 miles away where you just walk from. You'd buy a lamb or doves and you'd go and sacrifice. And nothing that was going on there was prohibited by the law. What was happening there is this small section of the temple that was designated for those who were non-Jewish to come encounter Yahweh was filled with Jews buying and selling the sacrifices they were about to make for their own sacrifices. So Jesus shows up. And he's not looking at what's happening, he's looking at where it's happening, and he begins to burn with this, what the Bible calls zeal. Right, the Greek word zealos, or zealos, where we get our word zealous, it's also where we get the word zealot, which was a group of people that believed so strongly that they were the people of God, that anyone would come against them, they would fight them by force. And so that same word is used for Jesus. And he begins to, as he's watching this happen, this place that was reserved for people who, who did not, who were not a converted Jew, they're checking it out, wanted to see who this God Yahweh was. He begins to start braiding a whip. You can almost imagine kind of mumbling, oh my God. What's happening, right? The word whip, by the way, um, was not the, the Greek word for whip used like, as, a, as a violent punishing tool. It was used for to, like a cattle. So I don't think Jesus is trying to like hurt someone if you're like, oh, he's angry, he was. But he starts to just drive out animals. He starts to drive out these money exchangers. Everything is going, he's just clearing what? Space. This space is designated for something and it's not the selling of your sacrifices for the Jewish people. It is reserved for those who have yet to know me. And he clears them out. Well, you can, you can imagine the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees, the ones running the temple, look at what's happening, and they're like, what in the world is going on? So they approach Jesus, and they're like, who do you think you are? And I'm paraphrasing here, but like, what kind of audacity do you have to come in here, 
some kind of no-name rabbi from some village far away. You could come and just and just have your way, run everyone out and make this huge mess. And so they looked at him and said, well, show us a sign. What kind of authority do you have? And Jesus' response here is brilliant and provocative and for them very confusing. He says, you want a sign? Destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up again. And they're like, Are you, um, this has taken us 46 years of Herod the Great. You're going to raise it up in three days. And John, as he's writing, he says, yeah, we, we figured this one out after the resurrection. Jesus was talking about himself. And I want you to capture this. Jesus in that moment, in a very subtle way, looks at them and says, I'm the temple. I'm the temple. And if you remember what the temple is all about, it starts to make sense. Remember those three things we talked about that are part of the vision of the temple? It's, it's the presence of God. Jesus is saying, I'm the fullness of God. If you want to know the Father, you can know me. These are all things that we find out later in the Scripture. Jesus saying, I am the presence of God. And secondly, when it comes to people, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. This is, this is who I am. Prayer. So, well, you know, whoever, my sheep, know my voice. I mean, there's all of these things that Jesus is saying here in this moment when he says, I am the temple. This is about me. But we find out later, this is exactly who Jesus came to be. I mean, this is this radical, radical notion. So I wanted just to give us um, just some context. There's a quote by C.J. Cruz, I think kind of encapsulates this really well. It says this, as Jesus superseded Moses, and he quotes John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the blessings of the kingdom superseded the ceremonial washings of the old covenant, as exemplified in the miracle at Cana. So now the temple of Jerusalem as the dwelling place of God is superseded by Christ himself. His body is the new temple, the place where God was now making himself present, Later, the church as the body of Christ assumes this role. Uh, if you want to look to the screen, I've made a, a little graph that can help, hopefully be helpful to show the zeal that's going on and how it, this zeal for the temple shows in two very drastically different ways. Uh, first, let's just talk about the, the, the zeal of the religiosity that's taking place. Uh, number one, that a religious zeal that was flooding the Gentile court with their own sacrifices had a very temporal lens. They're saying, hey, this is our spot. Get out. This is for us. Um, and so because of that, they had forceful exclusion, right? They used the court of the Gentiles for the Passover market. Next, they were willing to administer force. We talked about the zealots. Also, they have archaeologists have found two inscriptions on the temple walls that and the sunrise said, if you pass this point, you'll die. I mean, they were willing to guard. They were so zealous about the temple through the lens of the religiosity that they were saying, you're going to cross this. You're going to pay for this with your life. The result is that people are excluded. Prayer is restrictive. And his presence is confined. Let's compare this with the zeal of Jesus. Jesus is operating with an eternal 
um, he understands the temple with a much larger scope. And because of that, he doesn't have forceful exclusion, he has forceful inclusion. He makes his own whip and drives up money changers because that space was reserved for those who are on the outside. Next, he doesn't administer force, he receives force. He receives violence, even death on the cross. He's wrongly accused and tried, executed on the cross, and then raised on the third day. The result is that people are welcomed and pursued. Prayer is reestablished and relational, and presence is dispersed and displayed. This is a beautiful, beautiful, and in the same temple, both zealous, but incredibly different results because one had the proper vision of what the temple is all about. And we'll get to this in just a minute, but it doesn't actually end with Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the temple, he dies and raises again, and the temple's gone. He gives us that mantle. He gives us that name. He gives us that responsibility. We are now the temple of God. So I want to show a video from the Bible Project that I think does a great job of giving us this large scope of what the temple is all about. If you can go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that And it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest in Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2, and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of the light, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, God. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, if God give up on Israel, will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create...
um, our friend Melody is behind that door because her Wi-Fi is down today, so she's literally doing slides from back there. So let's give it up for Melody, you guys. <laughs> Very cool. Um, we're good. I'll take it from here. <laughs> you should check it out. Actually, shameless plug. If you just look up, just Google the Bible Project videos. I mean, they do a phenomenal job of taking some sometimes complex biblical ideas and just making them really understandable um, and, and very theologically sound. So, if you're ever just interested, if you like, like that video, it's helpful for you. Just go check that out. Um, but something that I, I love how the video ends because it ends with this idea that the temple is never rebuilt in a kind of a brick and mortar kind of way. It's given to us. We are, I mean, I mean just understand this. Everything about the temple tonight, we're the temple of God now. This church. The, the wood and the brick and the paint, as much as, as beautiful as its design, as much as we love this space, actually isn't the church. It's not a temple. We are the temple of God. We are the church. And those two ideas are synonymous to the eyes of Jesus. And so again, let's go back to those three visions of what the temple is always meant to be. And let's begin to start asking ourselves, well, how are we living this out as the church? I think it's a great conversation to have on our second birthday. Well, the church is about, the temple is about God's presence. And then my prayer more and more has been that when people come and they talk about light church, or maybe even the church down the street, they begin to, the first thing to come out of the mouth of the is the presence of God. And maybe they don't have the words for it, they don't describe it, it's like, it's just something about that. It's the presence of God. Secondly, the reason I love that the video we showed earlier, some things that have gone on is, if we're the temple of God, then we need to make sure that we have a heart for the people. Not just all us, but for everyone. A heart that just burns for those who would maybe never even step foot into a church. And thirdly, that we become a house of prayer, as Jesus said. That we become a people that are passionate about this relationship that we now have access to because of what Jesus has done. So I wanted to just kind of just kind of lay that before us tonight as a community. I've been all, all day, all of our gatherings. We've just kind of posed that question. What does it mean for us to be the temple of God? What does it mean for us to begin to start saying, hey, what if we are our carriers what are, of, of God's presence? His heart for people, and as a conduit of prayer, an example of prayer. Which led me to another question. I'm going to kind of end with, with kind of this question where we landed here. Is for the Jewish people at that time, their understanding of the temple really messed up their vision for people, prayer, and God's presence. And maybe for us, it's not a courtyard for Gentiles that's messing up, right? Maybe for us, we're not worried about um, understanding people are in or out based on um, how they worship, what land they come from, and things like that. But if we understand the vision of God's heart for His presence, for His people, and for prayer, it bears the question, what would Jesus come and want to rearrange in us? What, are, what is robbing us of that temple vision? Does that make sense? So we're going to leave the courtyard imagery here. And let's just talk, I just want to talk pastorally just for the next couple minutes. 
What is robbing us in our modern day, 2020, of God's vision for his presence, his people, and for prayer? And, there's, and I, as I was spending some time on Wednesday getting ready for this message, and I was, and I was just praying, I said, Lord, what, what's stopping me? These are the three things that kind of, I felt convicted person of the Holy Spirit, and I believe they carried more, maybe more than just me, maybe for our community, the church at large at the time. And these are the three things that just kind of I felt impressed with that are robbing us from, again, God's heart for people, prayer, and presence. And it's hurry, it's hurt, and half-heartedness. That these three things are doing a lot of damage to us carrying out God's full vision and potential for us being His temple, His presence. So let me just kind of walk through these three things. And again, if they don't sit with you, that's totally fine. But I encourage you to pray for your own. But chances are one of these or a couple of these might just hit home. The first one is this idea of hurry. As I sat down, fairly stressed this week, as I think about, okay, I have... Um, a family that I love. There's four kids that need a lot from us. There's a, a, a new church that we're trying to pour ourselves into. I just started going back to school. There's all of these things that I was just kind of swirling this week. I was like, man, am I going to get everything done? There's this going on. I showed up this morning. The internet's not working. It's just kind of one of those weeks, right? And this morning, as I'm about to preach on the presence of God, I find myself rushing past people wanting to give me a hug because I wanted to get the internet to work. And there was this hurry that was robbing me from a higher call than production. It was presence. And I was not living it. It was the hurriedness in my heart that was robbing me from seeing people. Sometimes my own kids. As my daughter called out, hey, hey, dad, can you, can you come see us? I said, not right now, I'm trying to fix something. The hurriedness that robs me from my time I love with Jesus in the morning where I used to get to pray, but I really got to turn that assignment. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's done damage to me. And I'm wondering if Jesus showed up, where would the whip come out with? <laughs> and for me, be, man, I've just been in so much of a hurry. And, and consequently, I've been reading a book as some of our leadership have, and there's actually an open table that's going to be reading through it. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Homer, and it has been so challenging and convicting for me. And what I love about this book is similarly what Jesus talks about, this idea of our pace, is it doesn't call us to laziness or apathy or some sort of like um, unrealistic you know, thing like, oh, just go and hang out at the beach all day long. God, it's going to be fine. No, it's, it's in the midst of your rhythm. It's finding that space just to be with Jesus. Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What I love about this verse is there's words like rest and easy and light. I like all those words. Those are really good words. But in the middle of that is a word called yoke. It's a work word. So he's not just saying, like, I'll give you rest, you know, just go and take a nap, which, by the way, is very spiritual if you ever have the chance to do that. I do not. But he talks about yoke. He said, just walk with me. Partner with me. Match my pace. Match my rhythm. 
hear me when I'm inviting you into to lie down in green pastures. Trust me enough that whatever is so important in your life will actually be taken care of. And what's even more important than that is, you, is presence. It's people. It's prayer. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I, I just wanted to read you a, an excerpt from his book, one that um, I was actually reading Friday, which is my Sabbath day. I'm reading this book, and, and the reason why this is so important is because if we're not careful of our pace, of our hurriedness, it, it robs our awareness of the presence of God. And I think this quote sums it up really well. It says this, Because attention leads to awareness. All the contemplatives agree. They point out that what's missing is awareness, meaning the chronic problem of human being felt experience of distance from God. God isn't usually the culprit. God is omnipresent. There's no place God is not, and no time he isn't present either. Our awareness of God is the problem, and it's acute. So many people live without a sense of God's presence through the day. We talk about his absence as if it's the greatest question in theosity. And I get that. I've been through the dark night of the soul. But could it be that with a few and set exceptions, we're the ones who are absent, not God? We sit around, sucked into our phones or TVs or to-do lists, oblivious to the God who is around us, with us, in us, even more desirous than we are for relationship. That's my prayer. As the temple of the Holy Spirit, both as my physical body, what the Bible says, but also as, as the body, that we just be increasing our awareness. But that can't happen if I'm too hurried to recognize it. Secondly is, is hurt. Um, there's a lot of hours I've spent in my life, Jen and I both, that we have listened to people's hurt. And sometimes that drives people into relationship with God, and sometimes we use it to build walls against other people in our own relationship with God. And my invitation to you tonight is, would you just surrender that hurt to God? I don't know what it is. I don't know how deep it is. But I know that if there's one person who can identify with your hurt, I mean, name it. Jesus can do it. Jesus can identify with your hurt. Is it loss of... He, he knows about loss. Right? Has it been... Is it betrayal? Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. I mean, name it. Jesus understands. It says that he can sympathize with everything. So whatever your hurt is, lay it down. John 10.10 says, It's the thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have a life and have it to the full. Henry Nouwen says, Suffering invites us to place our hurts in larger hands. Just love that life. In Christ we see God's suffering for us. And calling us to share in God's suffering love for a hurting world. The small and even overpowering pains of our lives are intimately connected with greater pains of Christ. Our daily sorrows are anchored in a greater sorrow that belongs to Jesus and therefore a larger hope. And the last one tonight, which I think is a culmination of those two. If we don't deal with hurriedness and hurt, eventually what happens is we have a half-heartedness about us because we don't know what to do it's become callous or whatever 
whatever kind of happens in that sense of we're too busy, we're too exhausted, we're too tired, we're too hurt, we don't want to be hurt again. So eventually we just become half-hearted. Which is, I, I would just like to end tonight just praying for you, praying for me, that we would not have the distinguished call of being the temple of God and then to find ourselves sitting in that presence of God, numb or distracted, but aware. Would you just bow your heads with me? I'm just going to pray Romans 12 over you. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.